Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is April 27th, 2016, and this is episode 1774 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, it's Wednesday, that means we're going to have an interview here with our special guest today, that is Terry Mulville, and we are going to talk today about what? Masonry heaters, masonry heaters, and something called silicon carbide heaters. This is for off-grid uh, heating of your home. And I guess you could be on-grid and use it as well. I don't think many people do, but if you were off-grid and you had one of these systems in your home and it was cold outside, well, you'd probably be break, baking bread and you really wouldn't care. What is a masonry heater? Well, you'll find out about that today, but basically it's a way of taking heat and pushing it into a thermal mass before it leaves your house and you use this with wood. And it will then heat your house and you'll be heated up like a lizard is when it sits on a sunny hot rock where actually it's heating the person, not the space. It's pretty amazing technology and when you find out how long it's been around, you'll be surprised. There is a backside or a downside to it though in some instances. If your house is already built, it may be difficult to retrofit one into it. They're very big. And they're very heavy. And you'll find out where this is where silicon carbide heaters come in and sort of do mostly the same thing. And they're far better for retrofitting into existing homes in many instances. We'll talk about some other things with basic preparedness today with our guest again, Terry Mulville, in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and uh, take a look at the year that was the episode. <clears throat> the year is 1774 because the episode is 1774. I have two segments for you today. I have the Minutemen and the Rape of Boston, and then I also have Johnny Appleseed is born. I'm not going to read that one, but just know that Johnny Appleseed himself, the real one, John Chapman, was born this year, 1774, in the midst of the Revolution. The Minutemen and the Rape of Boston, okay, this year has a lot of moving parts. Uh, Boston mob tars and feathers a customs agent and pours hot tea down his throat. They wrap a rope around his neck and threaten to hang him from the Liberty Tree. Make no mistake, their customs agent is a total ass. He definitely deserves the beating, but he does not merit a hanging. He finally apologizes and resigns his post after they threaten to cut off his ears. They're not playing nice, are they? Americans call it the Rape of Boston as the British Parliament and the uh, passes the Intolerable Acts. Boston Harbor is closed as a punishment for the Tea Party. A political cartoon shows the Earl of Sandwich lifting the skirt of Boston while Mother Britannia weeps. Parliament also suspends Massachusetts' royal charter, strengthens the Quartering Act, and authorizes criminal trials of British officials to be held in England rather than the colonies. George Washington calls it the Murder Act. Since it lets British officials get away with murder, Washington is contemplating war. The First Continental Congress meets to petition the king, but what they get are the Minutemen and a successful boycott of British goods. They re recognize the committees of safety as legitimate authorities to raise militias, even though the colonies already have militias. The Congress sees the need for a private militia that can be gathered quickly, thus the Minutemen are formed. General Gage arrives in the colonies to arrest Samuel Adams and John Hancock and to cow the colonists. The number of Minutemen increases dramatically. The women of Eddington throw a tea party. They join Boston and boycott English tea. They say it's the duty that we owe, not only to our near and dear connections, but to ourselves. It is one of the first women's political protests in America. The English press mocks them as old biddies. My take by Alex Shrugged, who puts these together for us at tspwiki.com, 
Remember, the communication between the colonies often took weeks. Also, violent agitation was a necessary part of the success of the American Revolution. But Benjamin Franklin and John Adams opposed violent agitation. They felt that it legitimized the cause of independence, which it did. On the other hand, if John Adams' plan for a legitimate, principled, and legal transition to independence had been followed, would we, still be argue, we would still be arguing about it. For, what it's, for your information, the British originally called the colonists Americans as an insult. But the colonists grew to like it, so the label stuck. Um, I would ask you today, what is the more powerful way to secede from an oppressive government? Through the instig instigation of violence or through the absence of violence and through a legitimate process? Have things changed? I always say the more things change, the more they stay the same. I actually look today and I think that if you were to try to rebel against most states in this day and age with true violence, this type of violence, that it wouldn't work very well. But as I look at peaceful ways of resisting and technological innovations, virtual nations, and making the state obsolete, I think maybe we've turned a corner, and maybe that's a good thing. Or maybe I'm just too optimistic. My take. By Jack Spirico. Next up, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey guys, why don't you show off your survival podcast pride by shopping at tspgear.com, where we have awesome tools like the Pocket Shot, Slingshot, and the TSP edition of the Genesis Knife by MT Knives, along with shirts, patches, and more. Learn more at tspgear.com. Fortress Defense Consultants offers tactical training, including rifle, pistol, tactical shotguns, specialized classes for women, force-on-force -force engagement training, and you can even do customized training with them. They will also travel to your location for larger groups. Find out more at FortressDefense.com. All right, with that, just real quick, before I bring on our special guest, I want to remind you guys we have released, or actually, we, I've, we, I really had not very much to do with this other than inspiring it. The folks at Elijah Spring Farm, the flagship Permaethos Farm, have released a Top Bar Hive limited edition survival podcast type. It's really cool. It's got some ants uh, routed into it. It's got the Val logo, which is the, 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 the my main logo with the head and the earphones. It's got the Survival Podcast uh, routed into it. It's got a serial number routed into it. And the, your, your serial number, I can guarantee you, will be from number one to number 50 if you get one of these hives. The reason I can guarantee you that is that's how many there will be. There's actually 51 in total. I have serial number zero, so we have that marked on the hives. These are a limited edition, one-time only thing. They are all done with 13-layer carb-compliant plywood, best stuff you can get to do this with. They're all done uh, on a CNC router, and this is a fantastic hive. Easy to put together. If you've been looking to get into top bar beekeeping, this would be a good time to get one, uh, especially if you want one of the limited edition ones because you can still get bees this year. And, hey, I want to give you guys a little bit of a, of a piece of advice here on bees in general, whether it's for this top bar hive, another top bar hive, or any hive. It is often the case that you need to order your bees really, really early to be able to get bees in the year. But if you work with mentors in the local area, they'll often have places where they're splitting hives and they can sell you one side of the split. And a lot of them are also doing swarm captures right now. And that's a great way to end up populating a hive. So if you're looking for bees and you're like, I can't order them from anybody, get a bee mentor and, and talk to somebody that's an active keeper that's out doing removals and stuff like that. And, and you can get bees from them just about any time of year, one way or another. Again, splitting hives and nukes and, and swarm captures and things like that. Not all year long, but for a lot longer than you can generally get that order window in for them. And we should all have bee mentors. I've had some issues already. If I didn't have my bee mentor, I think I would have had a big problem. Like, 
my bees turning into evil bitch bees, which they did. And uh, they were well on their way to rehabilitation through multiple splittings and requeenings. Anyway, uh, I will be setting up my top bar hive soon. I also took a video of the hive to show you kind of what it's like uh, that's in the post. So you can just go to survivalpodcast.com, and there will be a post called Get Your Limited Edition TSB Top Bar Hive while you can, and there will be a link in today's show notes to it as well. And with that, I want to say, hey, Terry, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks a lot for having me, Jack. Man, I'm glad to have you on. Um, this is a subject I think we've kind of touched on a few times, a little bits and pieces. We've never really gone deep into masonry heaters and using those as an option, especially for people in colder climates. Uh, but I always like to ask guests before we get into it, like, how did you get into what you're doing now? I imagine when you were a kid in high school, you weren't thinking, one day I'm going to grow up and I'm going to build masonry heaters and silicon carbide heaters for people or something like that. So kind of how did you end up where you are now? You know, I guess uh, when my wife and I uh, moved from the Chicago area up into Wisconsin, I had some time on my hands uh, to uh, to read the newspapers a little bit more. Uh, I used to be a commodities trader, trading derivatives at the Chicago Board of Trade. And um, when we moved up here, um, bought a couple of rental properties, uh, operated a self-serve car wash. And so I had some time to read the papers, and uh, I got caught up in renewable energy. Actually, I had um, somebody from the local uh, uh, renewable, en- not renewable energy, what was it? He was with, uh, uh, I forgot the name of the organization. It was Focus on Energy, and they um, they promoted and supported all things renewable and um, energy saving. Got talking about things, and he brought up a book by uh, Richard Heinberg, Called the party's over, and um, he just he just touched upon the fact that uh, our um, our energy um, situation isn't as stable and uh, long lasting as a lot of people thought. So that prompted me to buy the book and read it. And when I put it down, I said to my wife, "My God, um, if half of this is true, we are in for some challenging times ahead as far as energy." And then, of course, there's a knock-on effect of of everything. So um, we uh, sold our house and uh, bought some property, built a house with an eye toward um, sustainability, um, energy independence, and uh, put in two big, huge honking solar collectors. Uh, they'd almost be industrial. that take, take care of not only our um, domestic hot water situation, but provide uh, supplement our residential space heating. And um, that was one of the uh, uh, things that we had addressed. Um, I became aware of um, a wood-burning system uh, or technology called masonry heaters. And basically, masonry heaters are old-world technology. They go back, actually, to the Roman bathhouses when they used to light fires underneath the bathhouses and warm um, warm the occupants above. Um they uh, were refined and really developed in um, the uh, the Middle Ages when wood uh, was the primary source of heating um, the huts or the residences of um, European and Russian um, uh, families. So anyway, uh, it was a technology that was developed to retain more heat uh, provide more heat within the the residence uh, and burn less wood. Uh, 
and that technology is those those systems are still pervasive and commonly used um, in Europe and Russia. As a matter of fact, when we were exhibiting at a renewable energy fair here in Wisconsin, uh, we had somebody stop by. I couldn't at our exhibit, and I couldn't detect where if she was from Russia or Poland or whatever. But she said, well, I, "I don't understand why more people in this country don't have them." When I was when I was a little girl, this is what we used to rely upon for heating our home. Anyway, um, we were considering putting in a masonry heater, and we contacted one vendor, her contractor in the area, and he shot us a figure and said, whoa, this is way too expensive. And so we just did what we could to the house. And then later on, uh, doing more investigation into it, I realized that using a different contractor and um, approaching it in a different way, we could have done a masonry heater. And so that's kind of how we evolved into it. And I picked up on a system uh, that's actually manufactured in the UK. And it's less extensive, less expensive, and it can be retrofitted more easily. And so I kind of came back to um, that concept uh, and incorporated it into our house, retrofitted it into our uh, current system, or that system into our current house. And it's worked out really well. And so I'm kind of on a mission to let people know that um, if you're concerned about being off-grid or a disruption in the energy supply and you are dependent upon um, residential space heating to keep from freezing, this is something you should be aware of. Very cool. So could you talk a little bit then about how a masonry heater is different than, let's say, a wood stove or a fireplace. I mean, to me, a fireplace, a standard fireplace like we build in America is, is almost fundamentally useless. It's pretty, it might warm up one room a little bit, but it doesn't really do much. A wood stove will, will give you some heat, but uh, masonry heaters have an entirely different take on the way things work, right? Right, and let me come back to you, Jack. Um, resi- you're in Texas, residential space heating probably isn't a big deal, but nah. if nothing else, uh, you know how fireplaces work. So, just briefly uh, talk about the concept. You build a fire, and then what? Well, you build a fire, and then you have 90% of the heat go up the chimney. Exactly. So if the firebox temperature is 700 to 900 degrees, if you're a foot, two feet into the flue, probably not much of a drop in temperature then, right? Correct. So a masonry heater and the silicone carbide heaters that we also market, uh, the the uh, focus is extracting as much of that heat from the fluid fluid gases as possible before it leaves the system in the house. And that's done through uh, an extensive labyrinth of channeling um, around the core or the firebox um, of the system. So you might have, I don't know, I've heard uh, some extensive systems might have 70 feet of ducting before it actually leaves the flue. But you build a fire in the masonry heater or uh, a silicone carbide heater. The the flue gases rise, the hot flue gases rise, hit a cap or hit the ceiling of the firebox and then are channeled down uh, around the sides on the outside, ducting outside of the firebox and around and eventually after uh, passing through X number of feet depending upon the system, the um, flue gas, the heat from the flue gases is absorbed into either a mass of masonry or silicone carbide and then when it leaves it's much cooler. So you should experience 1,500 to, 1500 to 2,000 degrees um, degree temperature 
in the firebox, and by the time it leaves or enters the flue, it's probably about 350 degrees. And the difference in in the heat within the firebox versus the flue has been ex- absorbed into the system, and then the uh, heat uh, is re- released slowly, uh, in some cases as much as an, uh, a day, um, through radiant energy. Uh, radiant energy being a form of electromagnetic energy is electromagnetic energy is the only form of energy that can actually pass through a vacuum and to give people an understanding of you know the difference between radiant energy and convected energy um, imagine you you stand in the sun on a winter day at least we do up here uh, a 10 degree sunny, bright sunny day, assuming there's no wind, it can actually feel good. The sun hits your face and, you know, there's, there's that warmth to it. If you sidestep into the shadows, say behind a tree, uh, the air temperature is the same, but the sun's radiant energy, those electromagnetic waves um, coming from the sun uh, miss you. Um, they, they strike the tree or whatever. And so you're noticeably cooler. Radiant energy doesn't warm the air. It warms objects. And And that's very true. I remember I spent a lot of time in Colorado when I was in my early 20s. And, you know, with with it being dry air, so there's no humidity sticking to you. And it could be 15, 20 degrees out. And if you were standing in the sun, you could be comfortable in a T-shirt. Right. But you stepped in behind a tree and you'd start shivering really, really quick. And it it kind of amazed me how intense that sun was because in our winters down here, usually what you get is, you know, wet you get wet air and, and, and you get breeze, and that doesn't work out as well for you. Right, exactly. I don't know if uh, if I have the, the figures right. Somebody told me once that the sun projects more energy onto the Earth's surface in an hour than mankind produces in all forms, you know, uh, conventionally, in a year. And uh, I just, uh, you know, the, the, the sun is just a, a tremendous... Um, resource or support for us into the point somebody I read somebody's book on masonry heaters that said you know grab a piece of the sun well the sun um, creates plant plant life including trees and so the photosynthesis and this and that eventually becomes wood and then you consume it so you're consuming some some iteration of the sun's radiant energy it's embodied solar energy is exactly what it is yeah yeah and so uh, when you go into the home of a person that's got uh, a masonry heater, a silicone carbide heater, it's a different feel because um, the heat being released from the mass of masonry um, is warming objects. There's no air movement. You can actually, you know, and, and I picked up on this, you can smell um, the burning particulate matter from a furnace uh, if you walk through a house. It's it's not necessarily obnoxious, but you know the furnace is on. But when somebody has a, a fire, you know, in a masonry heater and it goes out, you can sit down, you know, in a chair on the opposite end <laughs> side of the room and you'll still feel comfortable. There's no air movement. There's no fan from a furnace um, circulating a convected heated air. But it's the radiant energy that is coming from the, the masonry heater, passing through the air, and then warming you, the object. Heat goes to cold, and so um, the electromagnetic waves or the radiant energy come from the masonry heater warm me. I, in turn, warm, you know, maybe the chair or some, something else, but it's it, it's uh, that physics that makes this, 
these systems so comfortable. Got you. Now, that all sounds really highly technological, honestly. Um, But these things have actually been around for a very long time, haven't they? Yeah, yeah. I I touched upon the fact that I think some some early concept or form of it uh, started in the Roman bathhouses, and then I think they picked up in... I don't know, what is it, the 17th or 18th century? Um, I was told that uh, decades or centuries and centuries ago, maybe a millennium ago, Europe was 90% forested. It was a cheap source of um, fuel for the inhabitants of Europe and uh, construction for their homes. And then over the centuries, it was more or less clear-cut. And it got to the point where wood became somewhat scarce and expensive, and only the upper class and the royalty could afford it, so the lower classes burnt coal, and then eventually even the upper classes found it you know, ex- too expensive to uh, rely on wood. So in all cases, uh, the, uh, the inhabitants of, of uh, various dwellings there were probably seeing the same things we see here as far as the conventional systems. All my heat is going right up the, the chimney, and so I, I don't know exactly where or when, but masonry heaters were developed. And I guess the trade was so specialized that if, if somebody contracted with a local masonry heater heating heater builder in Europe, um, they would come into the house and they would uh, have everybody leave so nobody could see. See what they're they doing, leave. yeah. yeah exactly. There's a lot of technologies in the past like that that were closely guarded. Um, Venice had stained glass that no one else could do. And they had a guild to protect it. And basically, once you became a master artist, they threw your ass on this little island. And you weren't allowed to leave, right? Because they didn't want the secret to how they did their glass to leave. And eventually it did. And then that whole thing ended. But, yeah, I can, you know, and you, you mason, masons, there's the whole concept of gilding there as well. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah. And, and so it, uh, it it picked up there. You know, in this country, we have an, uh, an abundance of energy. You're probably surrounded by, you know, derricks and oil wells all over in yep. Texas. Um, here, you know, uh, we're a little bit more uh, sensitive to uh, energy prices. But um, it, energy in the U.S. generally isn't, you know, a big deal. And now with prices being so low, nobody ever thinks about it. And you know that's that's kind of the state of of this industry, but it's still in Europe, um, energy is pricey, and I think there's been you know at least a couple of times in the UK where there was a disruption in uh, the, the natural gas. I think I can't remember the exact year Russia cut off um, gas to the Ukraine. I think it was like on a New Year's Eve. So I think they're a lot more sensitive to the possibility of uh, an energy disruption. So. It, when you go, we, we uh, have a couple of systems that we actually bought from um, a German manufacturer. Their homes are smaller, so the, the systems are smaller. And when I talk about systems, I'm basically talking about a core. A masonry heater core is um, is the system, and then you skin the outside with either stone, brick, or stucco, uh, depending on what you want to do. And they are two different they are two different uh, components. When somebody puts uh, a masonry heater core up, um, they usually uh, put a piece of cardboard between the core, the outside shell, because there's a different expansion. I'm probably getting too technical, but uh, um, everything starts with a core, and then you decide what you want to do around it. They're both part of the 
the system. They both absorb the heat. It's just that, um, you know, one is the internals of it. You can also get, uh, apart from just their box, which uh, produces the heat and, and heats the home, you can add a bake oven above. There's two types of bake ovens. There's a black bake oven and a white bake oven. Uh, that's the, the uh, terminology. A black bake oven is you fire the, the masonry heater firebox, and it burns uh, for about, you know, say an hour to two, and then burns itself out. Um, and then the heat continues to pass through the system, and the bake oven, bake oven above in a black bake oven has a, a throat or a slot where the heat just rises, you know, the food gases rise directly into the bake oven, and then from there they go through the channeling and the ducting and then leave the system. Um, there is a little bit of an issue with uh, residue, you know, uh, that, that might uh, reside in the black bake oven, but not a big deal. So if you wanted to cook a pizza or bread, in a bake oven, and then the white bake oven, the flue gases pass outside the bake oven itself, so there is no you know, possible residue. But if you wanted to bake a or a loaf of bread, you you have your fire, you wait for it to go out. The whole system is uh, still very hot. Actually, the bake oven above gets hotter than the uh, firebox below. For what reason, don't ask me. But, um, you know, you just, the flat fires out, you stick your pizza in there, you know, you wait 10 minutes, you pull it out, and it's done because everything is still so hot. Uh, and I was going to touch upon, before I forget this, um, the, the efficiency of a masonry heater is such that um, you, you have to, your typical wood stove fireplace, probably burns 700 to 900 degrees. And so it's burning off the solid part of a log. But there's another component or another part of the log that uh, can be consumed, and that would be the gaseous volatiles. And to burn the gaseous volatiles, which is a significant part of the wood, you have to reach a threshold of about 1,100 degrees Fahrenheit before you're actually burning off that particulate matter. Otherwise, it just boils off. So when you stand and you look at somebody, somebody's house in the chimney um, when they're having a fireplace with a conventional fireplace, you're seeing blue smoke. But with a masonry heater or a silicone carbide heater um, reaching temperatures of 1,500 to 2,000 degrees, you're burning not only the solid part of the wood, but you're burning the particulate matter that would normally leave as gaseous volatiles. So you, you're... Uh, your emissions uh, are much lower than a conventional fireplace. They're actually much lower than the EPA threshold for um, acceptable uh, emissions. You're burning more, you're getting more heat or energy off of a piece of wood because you're burning more of it, and not only the subpart, but the uh, particulate matter or the uh, gaseous volatiles. And um, you use less wood and uh, you know, it's a better bang for your buck in that sense. So we have, you know, Paul Wheaton's on the show occasionally, and he's over his head over uh, rocket mass heaters. Are these the same thing? Are they different things? Would you say a masonry heater is a type of rocket mass heater? Is it a different way that it gets that accelerated combustion? I mean, you see what I'm asking there? Yeah, you know, and I, I, I've I've had some exposure to rocket heaters. I, I got to admit that I'm not as well-versed as some of the people that uh, – um, erect these uh, not day in and day out. There's not enough of them that go up as far as I'm concerned. Sure. I'm a distributor and a retailer. I have seen rocket stoves. 
if I'm not mistaken, do they uh, do they channel their exhaust path in the same way? I think they, they kind of work the same way. They're going to dump that energy into the thermal mass, but I think they use smaller pieces of wood and things like that. It's it's more of a, a rocket stove. So, I mean, that question for me, my big question was there, are they really two different things? And it sounds like no matter what, no matter how they're different, they are different in some ways. Yeah, I, I believe so. I, I think I've okay. seen rocket heaters where the, the fire pot is in the middle, and then I, I think I've seen them exhausted off to the side. Don't quote me yeah. on that. I, yeah. I, I think that's the concept. So, uh, and to an, to a in a sense, I don't think for the same reason um, with a masonry heater, uh, you can you can exhaust the flue gases, you know, through uh, a warming bench, you know, that comes off the side. If uh, the listeners haven't or can't envision, you know, how how these things um, full, the chimney is always off. Because the the, the core, um, the central part of the system is made basically uh, the firebox uh, surrounded by the ducting, and so you can take the exhaust off the side or off the back or something for a few feet, and you can create a warming bench where okay you sit on this and uh, it's it's warm, uh, and then it, it continues to travel to an offset um, chimney or flue. Uh, I think the rocket stove is just kind of constructed that way anyway, isn't it? Yep. Yeah, that's that's exactly what's usually done with a rocket stove. So they they can they they do a similar thing. It's all about heating thermal mass. On on the difference question though, you keep throwing around a term that until I got your request for an interview, I had never heard silicon carbide. So how is a silicon carbide heater different from a mason heater? Okay, so if somebody's listening to this and said, "Boy, this is slick," uh, I'm in the UK and. <clears throat> I, uh, I I got gouged a couple of years ago when we had that disruption. With I want to be off grid. I want to be self sufficient. Um, but I have a house, so a masonry heater is is a very you know uh, huge system. It weighs several tons. You're not going to set this on your wood floor like you would a, uh, a wood stove. You would have to uh, pour a pad in the basement and then block up to whatever level of the house you want to set this on and then go ahead and, and run your flue. The silicone carbide heater that we call the eco stove, um, it, uh, I forget how many component pieces, it can be fabricated on site and assuming that you're not setting it on, you know, uh, two by fours supporting plywood, um, it can be retrofitted just about anywhere. In all cases, whether we're talking about a silicone carbide stove or a masonry heater, it's best to locate them in the center of the house where all four sides of the unit is exposed to to an open area. Makes sense. Yeah, um, because actually some of the systems, um, the hottest part of the the masonry heater is the back of it. The way the air is drawn in um, hits the back of the um, the unit and warms that, and so if somebody's up against, if the back of it is against the wall and they just want to see the firebox, they're losing the efficiency of it. But um, a silicone carbide heater uh, is nice because you can retrofit most any house with it. Um, it's a lot less expensive because it isn't, you know, such an extensive uh, project. Um, but it has the same. Uh, approach or characteristics as a masonry heater. They just use silicone carbide. 
a big masonry heater might uh, radiate heat for a day. You know, you come back uh, after you had a, a fire 24 hours, you put your hand up against the, uh, the stone or the brick, and it's still warm, meaning it's still radiating. Silicone carbide heater, the ones that we work with, um, will continue to produce 20, 25% of their original external temperature for 7 to 12 hours. So if you get the... Uh, you get this, the external temperature of the system up, uh, of the unit up to say 300 degrees. You know you're still 75 to 100 degrees uh, on the outside, seven to 12, seven to 12 hours later. So it's still radiating off heat. So there's a little bit of a trade-off. Um, it's not going to be as uh, productive over a lo- as long a period of time as a conventional masonry heater would, but the cost is. Uh, I don't know, like a third um, of... You're building a fire twice a day instead of once, basically, is what it sounds like, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and so that's a trade-off. If somebody says, no, I I, want to do whatever I have to do to retrofit my house. If you're building a house, that's fine. You just don't build a mason port foundation here for the the heater, and we'll come back and, and do that, so... Yeah, that makes sense. That makes complete sense. And I think so. That's really probably where those excel. So you give up a little of efficiency, but you're able to retrofit it into the, the average home. Like you said, any home can. I'm sure there's homes that are better laid out for it than others. Yeah. You you, you still want to be center of the home. So like some houses, the way they're built, like that is very difficult to do. But some houses with like the open concept, that would actually be not only easy to do, it could be made a really great visual focal point. Right. So I guess it all depends on the house, how how well it fits in. But the fact that it can be done is huge. So that makes sense. So what do systems like this cost? Because I know you said basically you had a sticker shock heart attack when you got the first number and, and you figured out another way to do it. But, I mean, what would this cost? Let's say we want to do a masonry heater, and we know we're going to do it when we build a house. We're tr- one, we're trying to retrofit and then what about these uh, these silicon carbide heaters? You know, how does that fit in there price-wise? Okay, I think, you know, if uh, if you're looking at um, a masonry heater and you can get different size cores, which necessitate um, the, the the shell and everything around it, but I, I, my, and my son is a mason, and they've, his company has is, is installed these. I, my focus is on retailing the, uh, the cores. But uh, I think if you keep it simple, and it's common brick or something like that, and you don't have a two-story great room, um, you know, it's just uh, the, the the system that stands maybe, uh, I don't know, six, seven feet tall, and then it's all flu above that, and I'm not going to count the flu. But I think you're looking at twelve to $15,000 um, core and shell installed. Um, if you want to get really elaborate in a two-story great room with soapstone, you know, you can be thirty, thirty-five thousand dollars, and I think that was the number the the people first shot us because they asked about you know what we had, and they said, oh, we got a two-story great room. I, I would have told them, no, you don't have to go up to the ceiling on the second floor with you know expensive stone. But I didn't think it had, and they didn't think to ask. The silicone carbide heater, um, I, our smaller unit, um, and these have been, even though they're produced in the UK, they they have been sent to. Uh, a company called Omni Testing Labs in Oregon for certification for emissions and um, efficiencies. The smaller unit uh, is 7,500. The larger unit's 9,500. Okay. And uh, they're easy to put up. I mean, I, I I did ours in like 
I don't know, less than an hour. Uh, you know, it, I mean, if anybody, like, quakes at that at all, you've never paid an electric heat bill in the northern United States. Because when we lived in Pennsylvania for three years, the house we bought there had those electric space heaters that are on the wall. So each room had its own heat. Yeah. And it was not long before I went out and invested in some extra kerosene heaters. And I actually ran kerosene in that house because there were months where there was no doubt you were going to hit $500 in electricity. And our summer electric bill in that house was always under 100 bucks. So you're talking four to $500 a month in the cold weather to heat with that. I mean, let's admit it. That's probably the least efficient heating technology, but builders used them a lot up there, especially in houses that were built, like that house was built in the 70s, because they were cheap. You bolted them on the wall, you attached electricity, and you walked away. Um, so the payback on something, when you're talking 10, 15 grand, and it does more than just heat, it's a focal point, yeah. you know, you can cook with it, is, is actually really fast in the right climate. Here, I mean, my house in the winter, you know, as long as there's not clouds out, the way it's designed and the south-facing aspect of it, we'd barely turn the heat on even when it's like 30 degrees outside. Right. But but if I was back in Pennsylvania, I mean, this would be a technology I'd have to consider. Yeah, I you know, and here I'm going to put on the tinfoil hat for everybody. I, yeah. I, I think in terms of um, exposure, I think in terms of uh, the what if. Um, I, I think I touched upon two winters ago. Uh, we were um, We had a problem with the... Uh, supply disruption. Um, we had a really brutally cold winter. I was doing a, a form of sales outside of what we're talking about, and I stopped in a propane dealer in January, January of what is 13, 14. And it was really brutally cold, and I, I said to him, boy, I, I guess I'm surprised I can catch you here at your office. I would think you're out making LP deliveries. He said, ah. he said I'm so frustrated. Why? you got to be ringing the cash register, he said, I'm not getting my allotment of uh, okay. the propane that I, I normally get. And I said, I, I don't understand what you mean. He said, my distributor is not, they're giving me a quarter of what I need. I said, um, is this just you and them or whatever? No, no, this is, there's a problem. And he didn't elaborate on it. When I left yeah. that guy's office, I said to my wife, call up the local propane company, have them top us off. We paid, yeah. I think, a dollar seventy-nine a gallon for our propane because we're own. And within two to three weeks, uh, there were stories on the TV that um, it was seven, eight dollars a gallon. There were people saying, "There's no way in hell I'm going to pay that." They were sitting in front of their electric stoves with the door open. <laughs> well, that's kind of buying it the other way, isn't it? That's that's expensive, but yeah, I understand what they're doing. I, I, I'm with you on that. We don't use a lot of uh, LP here. The only thing in my home that's on, on gas is my stove. But we have, I think, a 120-pound tank, and honestly, I could probably run that for over a year and a half before I would need to do it, redo it. And the propane guy's always like, why do you guys call when it's half empty? I'm like, because it's half empty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that's it. And, and I, I yeah. talk about um, that severe disruption in the, our winter of 13, 14, um, when we first moved in our house, uh, it was like 06, 07, um, and I was getting a relationship going with the propane guy. Uh, they said, now, you know, there may be times where we, you know, we ration you. And I said, well, what do you mean? I just dropped a thousand gallon tank in the ground here. He said, well, I mean, last winter we, we had to ration people to 200, 200 gallons a, um, uh, a stop. And I thought, that's, 
that's frightening. So for me, it's the the improbability of something happening. I and this goes back to my I guess my days as a trader of the board of trade that it's that third sigma event that nobody anticipates. That's what I focus on. I don't focus on you know the normal you know um, on time delivery uh, distribution system. I focus on what if because. Uh, I, I just think uh, if, if there is uh, an unexpected disruption, um, it, well, that's why we're talking on the Survival Podcast is because, you know, it's it's all asses and elbows to get to the table of uh, sustenance. And uh, Well, it, it doesn't take much to see it. When we, when we lived in Arkansas, for, we, had, we had a place up there for about two years. Well, we had it for a bunch of years as a bug-out location, but we lived in it for a little over two years. And um, Christmas, the year before we moved back, my son was up there. They got the worst ice storm they had, that anybody I knew that lived around me had, could remember seeing. They had, you know, 200-foot lodgepole pine trees coming down because it's all granite, and the roots are shallow, and they those huge pine bronze got laid down with the ice, and the trees just, they didn't break. They uprooted it, just went down. And so they, you know, you got an ice storm. It ran several days, so the crews can't even get out. At that point, because they, they, you know, dead rescuers save no lives type of thing. Then when they got out, the first thing they had to do was clear the roads before they could even begin to do repairs. And then we were at, like, I, there was over sixty-five thousand people in the county without power, and there was only like a hundred thousand people in that county. And then there, like, statewide, there was like I don't know, like seven hundred thousand, and I think there's two million people in Arkansas. That kind of gives you an idea of the scope. Yeah. Yeah. So when we came, so we were on this road. It was six miles long, and there were like fifty families on the off the whole road. And when we came last to get our power back on, some of my neighbors were like, "I can't believe we're coming." I'm like, "Of course we are." There's, there's, you know, there's ten thousand people in town without power. We're fifty people. They, they, they have to prioritize that way. But because we were prepared, and I had done. Up there, again, with cold, it's only going to be so cold. So I had a fireplace insert, kind of like a halfway between a fireplace and a stove. We had the wood stocked up. We had pro- we had propane heaters as well. And we had a generator. And the neighbor finally, like five days into it, comes down. He goes, well, the road's finally open. We can go to town and we can go to, there's a gas station open. You need anything. And he looks in the door and the TV's on and the football game's on. <laughs> and there's a turkey on the table and his gravy's steaming. And he's like, well, I guess you don't need much. And I saw he had two gas cans in his truck. So I go out back and I grab two more gas cans. I said, yeah, yeah, fill these up for me. And I threw him, you know, 20 bucks or 30 bucks or whatever it was. So he comes back and he's got the gas cans. And he's like, here they are. I'm like, oh, that's not for me. That's for you. I don't need it. If you only got two cans, we're going to be stuck for a while. Just keep it, you know. And uh, that's so that wasn't that big. Like people thought that was a huge deal. It wasn't that big a deal. And so when everything did kind of come back to life, my wife and I were like, okay, we've been cooped up for, you know, like a week and a half. We still didn't have power, but they were starting to have power in town and all. We had taken my son to the airport, and he met like four other people trying to get out. They rented a car together and drove home because they were all from Dallas. Um, And we went to Cracker Barrel for breakfast. The stories people were telling, you would have thought these people were on Napoleon's March back from from Russia. Yeah. Right. Where it was so cold, they were cutting flanks off of horses and eating the the, the frozen meat, and the horse was alive and walking and didn't oh, know it. Oh. That's how they, and that really, that's a true story, right? Oh. But that's how they were talking, like they had been through god awful hell, and we're like, and that's in where Arkansas, you said? 
Yeah. This was yeah, this is Arkansas. This wasn't like, you know, New England. Yeah. And but I I'll tell you what, the South, even here, that's something people do not realize the threat of winter weather. Like this year there was no winter. It just didn't happen with La Nina. But the last two, we had more ice here than snow. We had the two winters ago, we had four times that the entire property was completely covered under like two to four inches of ice. Wow. Wow. So in those situations, even those situations, you might want to scale down your system, but I can see the value of one here because it's a lot more efficient, and again, you can do other things with it. My issue would be like this year, I would have never turned it on because it would have been too damn hot, hot in the house. Right. You know? Yeah, I mean, but, you know, I, I I was under the impression you guys were just sitting there laughing at us in the, in the uh, you know, the timber lines here because... Uh, it depends on the year. It depends on what year it is, right? Like like I said, this year, I think we had 15 days that went under freezing, and it was like, you know, 29, and it was it was, it was sunny and warm by 10 a.m., that type of thing. But, yeah, last the two years ago and three years ago, we had it socked in. Well, the three years ago was when they had the Super Bowl at the Cowboys Stadium because it never snows here in February, and it iced. Wow. And I the whole brand-new... $500 million stadium was iced over and it thawed out like the day before the game started. So they were able to do it. So it all depends, right? Yeah. It's, well, it, 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 yeah, and it, it just gets back to the unforeseen. And that's, that's, that's my, my focus is on what if, what, if, you know, if the unforeseen, and I just want to be, you know, as, as, uh, self-sufficient as possible. And, you know, I, I still believe in solar, um, you know, right now, the bang for the buck isn't there, but you know we've got it. Um, but as long as I've got wood, I can I can maintain, you know, some heat so my pipes don't freeze, and you know we can we can bump along. And that's why I you know I came back to masonry heaters and silicone carbide heaters is because, you know, as much as I realize I probably should migrate south, you know, somewhere where I have less exposure, you know, this is where we are, and I just want to uh, be. Um, as self-sufficient as possible, and I like these systems, so, you know. That's awesome. I, I actually think sometimes the other way around, because you know what they don't have? A masonry air conditioner. Yeah. I, I mean, we, you know, we, when you have summers where you get temps 105, 110 degrees, uh, and houses are just not designed the way that they were 200 years ago down here, if you don't have air conditioning, it, it's downright dangerous, especially if you have young children or you have elderly people that have health issues. Right. Um, you can have people die, and it happens every year. In, in every year, there'll be a report, you know, and it's usually elderly. It's, it's either elderly or some, you know, person that's really not well off and they have a child die. And it'll be, it won't be one or two. It'll be several dozen through the summer, and that's just the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Um, old people that are on fixed incomes, they get afraid of their electric bill, and they turn the you know, turn the the heat or the air conditioner off, mm. uh, or they start to go like my father in law had to deal with this. He was beginning the onset of Alzheimer's. He would turn he would think he was cold, and he would turn the heat up to like ninety in the oh. summer, and then he'd call and freaking out. He couldn't figure out how to undo it. So we eventually put a lockbox over it with a computer controller. You know, I don't uh, I don't know much about him. I, do you, have you talked about or are you uh, familiar with these swamp fans? You know, those work great about 200 miles west of here. They also call them swamp coolers, and there's evaporative coolers. That's it. Yeah. Um, but you have to be in a very low humidity okay. for those to work well. 
So they may work here in August. Because by August, it gets so hot, it's not humid because it, it literally burns the humidity off. But it's actually humid here until about August. And then when September comes, you're like, oh, it's fall. And it's like, yeah, fall, we'll see you in October. Yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I just, you know, I, between freezing to death and dying to death, I think, you know, the former has a better possibility if you're not yeah. if you're not ready. And so, uh yeah. Yeah, so that's one of the things we decided we're going to somehow get back to uh, and, and make sure. Uh, we're used to, not used to, it doesn't happen as much as it used to, but, um, you know, power lines going down for the reasons you're talking about, ice on the power lines, trees going down. Yeah. And the uh, utility crews are really good. They get there pretty quick. But, you know, again, uh, with reference to that winter where they uh, had to uh, cut back on the natural gas that was available at, you know, quadruple of prices, it stays with you for a while, you know. Yeah, you don't forget. It's it's funny how that played out last night. So people don't take stuff seriously until they're affected by it. So about a month ago here, we got hit with two storms in a row with hail. And I don't mean little marbles. I mean, you know, baseball, softball size hail. Oh, that's serious. And so now people are waiting eight months to get their cars in to be repaired, even though they're insured because... There's just that many of them. Hmm. So we had a major storm come through last night. We had power out for a couple hours. We had 85-mile-an-hour winds, even though we didn't get any tornadoes. And we were supposed to get bad hail again, and we didn't, but we were supposed to. There were people that drove their cars to park them under overpasses because they didn't have a garage. There were They were on the news last night showing people had, like, mattresses strapped to their, their windows and stuff. Huh. And what people were saying is, if my car gets dented, Fine, but if I have the windows blown out of my car and I can't work, I got a problem. Yeah. yeah. So the only reason they were taking it that seriously, though, is because it just happened. And I bet you by next year, most of those people won't even, you know, oh, it's a storm. Yeah. I well, I don't know. I, I <laughs> it's uh, the, the one thing that you you can't, you know, I, I don't know, mitigate to a certain certain extent is mother nature, you know, and it's just. Uh, you, you try to prepare for it, but you know it's the people who just kind of bump around. As if it's supposed to rain today. It's like, yeah, I yeah. check my weather buck all the time. I got, I got to see what's coming at me, and um, I don't know. Is it, that's that's me with the tinfoil hat thing. I don't think it's foil hat. I mean, last night, so we knew these were coming, and they were saying really high probability of tornadoes and something changed in the atmosphere and. Thankfully, lowered it. And there were actually people pissed off about it, like, you made us worried for nothing. Oh, God. But so the first thing I did was before everything rolled in, I backed my pickup truck right up to the door. And uh, I've got a, a, a Stephen Harris-style battery bank in there with an inverter, and it's recharges by the truck. And I'm like, I, I don't think we'll be out for long, so I don't want to drag the generator out or whatever. Power went out. Everything was all ready to go. Went up, fired out the truck, clicked on the inverter plugged the TV set into it, plugged the light into it, and we stayed weather alert. Wow. You know, and it, it took it took a minute to back the truck up, another minute to go get the two extension cords and have them ready to go, and it took 25 seconds to walk outside in the rain, turn the truck on, flip the thing. And my wife's like, we can go a little while without. I'm like, no, we have severe storms that we're just now feeling the brunt of, and we don't know what's going on. So, you know, we turned on the Fox 4 weather guy, and they have the live radar, and we knew alerts, warnings, when the storm was going to pass. And we had that knowledge so that you can, you know, do your best to take cover uh, if you end up in a, in a situation like that. I don't think that's tin hat. I think that's like 
self-preservation. I don't want to die if I don't have to. If you know, like to say that's tin hat is like saying, well, if you're standing in the middle of a road and a car comes at you and you jump out of the way, uh, that's tin hat. I think um, they're sending the tornadoes to get me with the harp machine from Alaska. I think that might be tin hat. But <laughs> you know, and, but, and, and before you leave that point, you know, one of the things just uh, floors me. And of course, it's that's it, it's, uh, it's it's a local thing. You don't. It, it makes sense in Florida, but in the dead of winter, when it is ten degrees, you know, I see the kids coming out of the grade school and the high school in t-shirts. And they go to the car, and uh, you know, okay, it's it's cool not to wear a coat, I guess. Just walk around in in a t-shirt in the most brutal weather because I'm getting in my car, and I'm thinking, and you're assuming that the car is going to get home okay. You're not going to wrap it around a tree, and um, life just goes on. And in my car, I've got you know blankets, the hand warmers, um, you know, plus sure. all that other stuff, because I think, well, what if, you know? So that's how I approach things. Yeah, I know. I'll tell you what cures that. When I was a kid, everybody walked to school, and you can bet your ass you had a coat. And you didn't forget it at school either, because if you did, you went back to get it really fast. Yeah. Um, so can you tell us how people can learn more about this? Can can they work with you? Are you just regional? No. Uh, I'm kind of – and thanks for asking, Jack. Uh, I'm, I'm transitioning. I I had a website, um, sunnysolutions.us, that was um, – I tried to touch upon everything renewable. And then I thought, you know – these are the important things, and I still believe in solar thermal, solar photovoltaic. It's good, but it, you know, uh, I think if I remember correctly, solar photovoltaic is about 15 to 20 percent efficient converting the sun's radiant energy to DC electric. Solar thermal is about 80 percent, um, and that's we have some solar thermal panels. But I, you know, in our neck of the woods, um, as long as I got a pile of wood, I got energy. Uh, I put in this expensive solar thermal system that does domestic hot water and residential space heating, but it really only addresses the shoulder season of um, our winter, you know, the the fall, and then days are shorter, they're cloudier, and I'm not doing anything with my solar. But my my silicone carbide here works. So uh, we dropped the, the all things renewable, and I'm trying to get a website up, masonaryheaters.us, my son and I have um, um, a business. He concentrates on the installation. This is a Mason Radiant Rocks LLC. Um, we're here in Wisconsin, and uh, I, I guess uh, hopefully I'll be up and going with a Facebook account and a website in the not too distant future. Should I pass along my phone number or could I find that through the website? You can do that, and I'll write it. I've got it. So, I mean, is it the one that I called you on that right. you want to give out? Yeah, the landline. Okay. So if you want to go ahead and give that out now, uh, and I'll put it in the show notes too, and and, and I'll if you're okay with it, uh, I'll give people your email address as well. Um, yeah, if that's still valid because it's at the Sunny Solutions domain. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. yeah Terry at SunnySolutions.us. I still have that uh, email. Um, I have Terry at uh, MasonryHeaters.us, and um, our phone number is area code nine two zero three five four. Six two six zero. We are located in uh, Berlin, Wisconsin, uh, but there's not. We're a member of the Masonry Heaters Association, and we're talking about how little um, masonry heaters uh, are are found in North America. Uh, conversely, pervasive in Europe, but um, the, the you know 
if if uh, somebody is in the upper Midwest, uh, there's only a few of us doing it. So <laughs> check out the Masonry Heaters Association website. Uh, give us a call, and we'll see what we uh, are doing can make sense for you. Yeah, I think there's definitely an opportunity to make this a more accepted technology, and I think it's one of those things. The more expensive it gets to heat a house, the less the less expensive the payback time is on something like this. Yeah. And if I were in a northern climate, especially if I were in a process of building, I mean, I think that like you'd have to be. It's one thing retrofit. It, like I said, it may not work for every house, but if you're actually where you're designing your own house and you can control the floor plan and what have you, if you were in a northern climate not considering this, I'd ask you if you bumped your head or something, or if you'd maybe never heard of it, um, because it, it just makes so much sense. And if you're you're building a new house anyway, especially if you're doing anything that's like a custom build where you're in control of the layout, it, it's almost always the case that people up there are going to be doing masonry work in the home anyway, a fireplace or what have you. So why not do a little bit more of it with a little bit more thought and get more out right. of it? And then again, not to leave the... Uh, the the system that uh, we're really trying to get behind, uh, it's called the EcoStove. It's a silicone carbide heater, the same technology. You can go online to ecostove.com um, and uh, extensive YouTubes and um, technical information and uh, um, great support. So ecostove.com, uh, masonryheaters.us. I don't have it up yet. I will uh, shortly. Um, and then I've got a Facebook account. Okay, well, what I'll do is I'll put the Eco Stove uh, link in the show notes, and I'll put yours, your new site in the show notes as well, because these things get listened to for years and years and years by people that are new to the show. Anyway, man, I do appreciate you being with us today on the air. Yeah, and I appreciate the exposure. I really do. Thanks very much, Jack. That was a great interview. I, I definitely learned a lot of things that I didn't know. I know it's not really the best technology for me in the state of Texas, but like I said several times in the interview, if I were in a northern climate, I'd be all over figuring out more about this. Um, with that, you know... I want to say thank you to a lot of you guys that have been helped supporting the show recently by uh, using our Amazon link. It's not a huge amount of money, but it is it is nice to see. And if you want to participate in doing that and you like this show and you want to support it, whether you're a member or not, there's a simple way to do it. Like Like millions and millions of people, you probably shop on Amazon. And all you have to do is instead of going to Amazon.com, go to TSPAZ.com. And when you get there, just shop on Amazon like you always do. And if you do that, you'll help support our show. That's how simple it is. You'll type one less letter, you spend the same amount of money, and you help support what we do right here at the Survival Podcast. So thank you to those of you that have been doing it, and please uh, consider doing it if you have not. Remember, you can bookmark it, and then it's just there, and you can go back and shop in our Amazon store basically anytime you want. It's just the Amazon store. Uh, next up, if you want to do business with other members of the TSP community, consider uh, checking out the TSP business directory. That's at tspbiz.com. Today's, uh, today's supporting member of the business directory is a company called Crazy Good Pens. It's a business started right out of the TSP audience. David crafts these custom-turned pens by hand and can even take custom orders. Check out his Etsy store by following a link on his TSP directory listing, which, of course, I'll have a link to in today's show notes. Really a great thing. Uh, we're having a lot of great success out of the directory. So if you have a business and you've been thinking about uh, getting some exposure, there's probably no place you can get the kind of exposure you can get here for five bucks. I mean, think about that. If you have a business, it might take four months with as many members as we have, but you'll get listed, you'll get mentioned on the show as a featured member. And if you're looking to buy stuff, check, I mean, I said shop Amazon, but God, check this first whenever you're buying anything. And check the Member Support Brigade for discounts as well, and that's another way you can support the show. 
Just go to survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more about how you can become a member, and those discounts will pay for your membership. So those are great ways you can support what we're doing here without it costing you a lot of money, or in most cases not costing you any money at all that you weren't going to spend anyway. Uh, next up, I do uh, want to uh, remind you guys about something that I, I, I think is kind of timely to bring up, and that is um, the weather. We talked a little bit about it, about it today. Um, it looks like we in the South and the Midwest and, and what have you are going to be under the gun again Friday. Uh, we just had a major outbreak last night that turned out not to be as, as bad as it was. But going forward this year, keep an eye on this. You know, like I said, we talked about it with the guests a little bit today. Um, it's no joke. It, it really is no joke. I mean, I get tired of the, when, the, 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 like the almost stupid nursery rhyme level that the newscasters, like last night, they were saying, when there's lightning outside, go inside. Stuff like, you know, let's turn around, don't turn around. But there's a reason they do that, and that's because so many people don't pay attention. Um, like I said, we were in a, 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 a pattern, a weather pattern, right through this winter that made the winter mild for the South. And uh, that pattern has shifted and is in, in decline now, and you're going to see more and more severe weather, especially for the next two months, probably right up until about July. So, so stay weather aware. Uh, make sure you have a good weather app on your phone with alerts for extreme and dangerous weather. And just take a look at the forecast every day. Just every day, take a look at the forecast and make sure that you are prepared. Uh, I do have a little video I mentioned in the show today that uh, we uh, had the truck ready to go. I have a little video of our great big flat-screen TV just with the newscaster on it with the radar up and running while the power's out in the house. That's you know the power of Stephen Harris' battery bank. It really is. And with it being in my truck, a mobile battery bank, it's, it's as good as a generator, really. Um, it's, it's not going to run out of power if the truck's sitting there on idle. And my big old diesel truck... I keep it full all the time, and it can idle a long time on a tank of gas, or tank of diesel, I should say. So make sure you're thinking about these things. You know, this would be a good time. Go through your stuff. Make sure you at least know where flashlights and stuff like that are. Have a blackout kit, which is where all your stuff is. When the power first goes out, the first place you go so you can find all your other stuff. Make sure you have one or two of those at good locations. And think about some power failure lights. I'll put a link in the show notes to some of my favorite power failure lights. Uh, you'll see one in my video where I, I walk into the bathroom and the bathroom's lit up with an LED power failure light. Um, this makes it possible for you, like when you're, you know, walking through the room and the lights go out and you're about to stub your toe and you're, you know, in your shorts and you're going to sit down and have a drink for the evening and you, you just, you're just done and all of a sudden it's pitch black and now I got to figure out where I am. These little power failure lights are a great, simple, inexpensive uh, solution to that. So pay attention to the weather a lot, guys. Really do. Uh, with that, I'm going to finish up with a, a song uh, by a guy named Hal Ketchum. And uh, the song's called Old Soldiers. It's not really about soldiers. To me, what this song is about anyway is a failed relationship dying and how it hurts. And it's also about, to me, the whole concept of soldier in this song is um, combat. right? And if a relationship is a competition... Uh, it generally will end bad. Um, I turned I turned my head for a moment. You turned away as one of the long lines in the song. And if there was any, if it bothered you, you never let it show. Like you never showed me that anything was wrong, right? And I, I've talked to people that have had, you know, relationships, marriages fall apart. Uh, that say like I never knew anything was wrong. And there's always signs that there's something wrong. 
But we don't see them, especially if we're in competition with our partner. And as I've said on the Survival Podcast many times, if we're going to survive, then survival of the family and the family unit, survival of our culture, survival of community, all of these things are important. And that all flows around the nucleus of strong families. So kind of my little advice for you at the end of today's show is to make sure in your relationships with your, your spouse, your significant other, your fiancé, whatever it is for you, uh, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, etc., try not to make it a competition. But think a little bit beyond that. So many parents are in competition with, or, with their children, and so many adult children are still in competition with their older parents. So many siblings in competition with each other. It, this doesn't really make sense. It, it's, it's an output mainly of the dynamics of the modern world today. We, we've been conditioned to see everybody as opposing what we want, even the people we care about the most, and want what we want for ourselves too. And, I mean, I'm not talking about simple sibling rivalry. There's no brother that didn't want to be faster or stronger than his brother. I mean, that, that, that's okay. But you know what I'm talking about. This, this, this attitude of competition within our families for attention, to get what we want, to get our way, and a lack of a willingness to, to compromise, or in a, a situation where somebody's always the one that's compromising. Often, if that's the case, the person that's, the person that's actually the one that's always getting their way is the one that needs to recognize that, because they usually don't think they are. Because you don't want to be like the guy in this song. It's worth fixing your problems before they are totally evident. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Old habits die hard Some wounds never heal we got what we came for This is part of the deal I can't forget you I can't even try Sometimes it seems like Somebody died Oh, soldiers die hard Oh, hearts beat slow Oh, friends go Lovers just go Some fools never learn Ain't that what they say I turned for a moment You turned away You had your reason God only knows If it bothered you, baby They'll never show Oh, soldiers die hard Oh, hearts beat slow Oh, friends go easy Old lovers just go Oh, soldiers die hard
Oh 